When it comes to traffic, have you ever heard of an R-cut? That's one of the proposed changes that the province is looking at for Highways 1 and 5 near Carberry after that deadly bus crash last year. Could 2024 be the year of the ring? That's what some jewelry companies say. So we check in with the wedding industry to find out how things have bounced back and what is trending. Breakfast with the Bombers on Tuesday. Today we spoke with the new special teams coordinator, Mike Miller. And inspired by something that's relatively new to the city of Winnipeg, we asked you about surprising culinary experiences, good or bad. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, January 9th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And Loren, regarding those ice crystals, you said it, it was kind of foggy on your drive-in, yeah? I was just surprised. I, like I, As I texted you guys this morning, I don't know the science behind things, but because there was so much fog in November, December, in my mind, I attached that to the mild temperatures. But mm-hmm. There was the connection between the fog and the mild. And so today, as I'm freezing in my car and waiting for it to warm up and scraping things away, and I... Scrape what I thought was a good enough to make me have a good vision as I'm driving and I'm going down the highway and I thought, I think I have to pull over. Like, I didn't scrape well enough. And then I realized it was just so much fog. Yeah? It was crazy. I just, so it was minus 26 in my car. That's what it said this morning. And so just felt like it was too cold to see fog. And then Greg, as I pulled into the parkade, shared with me the why. And I said, do you just know that? Or did you Google that while you were waiting for me? And he knew it. Well, the humidity is super high. It's 81%. I didn't know what the humidity was. But I said, well, the good news is because that ice fog is is sort of there, those ice crystals are are hanging around, means it's not very windy. Because if it was windy, they wouldn't be lingering in the atmosphere. So, but doesn't yeah, that mean we have right a damn now, cold? Uh, you, you could call it damp all you want. The point is there's no wind as as cold as it is. Yeah, but we want the dry cold. Isn't that what we always sell ourselves <laughs> on? I thought we want the dry, not the damp. I can't help you with the well, damp or the dry. It is what it is. You just said this yesterday is... at least it's sunny out. And then it wasn't. It was foggy and it was damp. So. so so in terms of when we're battling cold, right, it's the dry versus the damp. We want the dry check mark. We want the sunshine versus the cloud check mark. But probably does wind supersede? seed, the lack of humidity, or would we prefer the damp over the wind? Would you take dry and windy and sunny? Like the combination. There's lots of combinations there. We have to no, decide what the optimal amount of cold. cold is. No, I've been conditioned to okay. say, well, at least it's a dry cold. And that didn't happen today, Brett. Oh, so okay. So dry cold, sun or cloud. Sun. Sun. There's wind no sun. or no wind. Depends if there's sun. No wind, always no wind. That's right. You would take no wind over and cloud? I, I know, Whether sun or cloud, no wind. Always no wind. Because if, it, if right, it's minus if, five, but there's a, there's a 70K south wind that I have to walk sure. home in, I'm miserable. That's right. But then, and, and, and I, what it's if funny, it's sunny? Still, don't. If it's windy, I'm miserable. Um, but I, I've been thinking about this because I've been trying to reflect on. Yeah, you know, December was such a weird month, and it was nice that I wasn't frozen, that I didn't have to pull out my big parka. I think once in the month of December, I don't think I had to wear mitts at all. Just put my hands in my pocket. But even on Friday, when I was just leaving here and walking over to the pub. I think it was minus eight. So it wasn't that cold, but it was the humidity was like 95%. And Damn cold. I was, it didn't matter. <laughs> I could have been wearing like the world's heaviest parka and I still would have been totally frozen because it shot right through me. You can feel it in your bones. To or, your core. I remember my dad telling me about this business trip he took years and years and years ago to Montreal in the winter. And he still talks about how cold it was. And I remember when someone moved to, this was many years ago now, but we had a colleague who had just come from Montreal, and I said, you ready for winter? And he said, you can dress for it here. Mm-hmm. can't dress for it in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And that damp really, that's, I don't know how people do, like, deal with that on a daily basis. For us to get it here and there, okay, you suffer for a day or two, and then right. the conditions change. 
Because as Loren pointed out, we're more used to dry cold. But what was, like when you lived out west, Greg, did, is that what it was like when it got cool? When it got damp, yes. And the coldest I've ever been, I shared this story on air, so I'll do it very briefly here. The coldest I've ever been was at a Seattle Seahawks game at the end of November. It was raining and about two degrees outside, just barely above freezing. And that's the coldest by far far that I've ever been. The second coldest was in Southern Ontario in Toronto. And I was at a conference there in, I would have been in January and it was minus 20. It felt like minus 50. Yeah, living in Toronto and Ottawa are colder. Those are colder winters. Right into it. And I was at the 1991 Grey Cup and sat outside. Granted, I was dressed for it and it didn't bother me. And I was facing north. The wind was at my back. Wind. And uh, <laughs> so, I cold. wind. I cold, and so the whole idea that uh, that dampness does, I think, play a huge factor in terms of whether you're ultimately frozen or just kind of cold and can deal with it. But yesterday I went for a walk in the afternoon and I think that those conditions are my favorite for a walk. It was light snow. Perfect. No wind. Yeah. Snow crunching under your feet. And it was so that it, whether whether it's lightly snowing or snowing heavy, that's actually probably my favorite when it's a heavy, fluffy snow, but there's no wind. I wouldn't want to be driving in that, like driving on the highway in that kind of snow. That would be awful. But when you're just out for a walk, I find that kind of like almost magical. So yesterday I had a nice, pleasant walk in the light snow. So there, that would be my pick. That's light, your, snow, light snow or snowing, no wind. Sun. There was sun yesterday. There was, well, not when I was okay, out for a walk not when it's it, Typically not when it's snowing. Just saying. You guys are driving me nuts. <laughs> you guys are driving me nuts. Don, uh, Chucker Don, who we spoke to yesterday about the, the Carberry intersection, he's driving through what looks like Ontario or in that region. He's got heavy, wet snow. They're, they're expecting a big storm there, major storm headed to southern Ontario. So at least we don't have that. A far-reaching Texas low, he sent us a screenshot from the Storm Center on his weather app. A far-reaching Texas low is forecast to track into Ontario Tuesday ending Wednesday morning. So is that what we deal with the Colorado, Colorado low, low yeah. and they deal with a Texas low? Yeah, the Gulf, the Gulf effect, lots of rain. And they were talking about not uh, overnight, like this morning, but yesterday they were worried about I'd never heard them referred to as nocturnal tornadoes. <laughs> tornadoes overnight. Those are the most dangerous ones, right? Yeah, you can't see them coming. You don't see them coming. And, you know, typically people are at home and in the bed and sleeping and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, they were, they've been expecting some, uh, uh, several rough days of weather, in particular uh, east of the Mississippi. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. In our next segment, we'll tell you how you can win yourself some tickets for the Winnipeg Renovation Show that's happening this weekend at RBC Convention Center. And a bit later on at 7.35, breakfast with the Bombers, talking with a new coach, Mr. Mackling. Yeah, he went from player to coach and didn't even really think about the implication of, oh, wait, I didn't announce my retirement, (laughs) but I guess I'm retired now. Mike Miller will join us at 7.35. 35 or thereabouts to talk about his new role with the Winnipeg Football Club. And Jets back in action tonight, so we'll have keys to the game with Cameron Poitras just after 8-10. But right now we want to discuss the Manitoba government and their commitment of $12 million to improve the intersection at the Trans-Canada Highway near Carberry, where 17 people were killed in a bus crash in June of 2023. Global's Marnie Blunt explains what is being proposed to make the crossing safer when those changes could be ready and how one family member of a victim is reacting. An intersection that's been described as a graveyard of sadness, where 17 lives were lost when a bus carrying 25 people collided with a semi on Highway 1 and 5 in June. And now a new report from the province aims to outline ways to ensure this never happens again. We are going to do the safest thing when it comes to the future of this intersection. That includes short, medium and long-term safety enhancements. Many of the short-term options have already been put into place, including additional signage, flashing lights and refurbishing the existing rumble strips. A review on speed and speed compliance will also be conducted. 
The crux of the report, the medium options, which include a median widening, a roundabout, or a reduced conflict intersection, which forces drivers to turn right and do a U-turn when trying to go through the intersection. One of those three options will be selected through a public consultation process within about six months. An estimated $12 million project with construction planned for 2025 and a target of being complete by fall 2026. The longer-term option being considered an interchange, which would take more than 25 years. To the family members and uh, to the survivors, I want to acknowledge that we cannot make things right or make you whole. But we are going to work our hardest to ensure that something like this does not happen again. Adrian Zerba's mother, Claudia, died in the crash. She says it's too hard for her to even visit the intersection, but says she's pleased to see the steps the province is taking. And that's why I'm here for my mom. My mom was on that bus. I don't know why. So were all those other people. And changes have to come. And I think what they brought forward today, I'm, I'm happy with it. It does give me some peace. Dashcam footage obtained by police shows that the semi-driver traveling eastbound along Highway 1 did have the right-of-way at the time of the crash. Now the RCMP investigation is still ongoing and on Monday officers wouldn't say whether or not criminal charges have been ruled out but did say they have not been able to speak with the bus driver yet who was also injured in the crash. Marnie Blunt, Global News. Marnie spoke to Adrian Zerbos, who mom died in that crash. We spoke to her yesterday as well, Greg. And so I was texting with her last night just to check in to see how she was doing. And she talked about the idea that, A, she felt like what was being said was authentic. So that was important to her, that she felt it was genuine and coming from the right place. And she also was talking about the idea that this R-cut that they're looking at, maybe if it's successful or if it makes sense, there are other intersections that this might be useful at. And maybe there are other spaces we should be taking these review of and I think that's an important thing as we look down to the road. Where else should we be looking at making improvements? But the three options are considering those median options, the median widening, a roundabout, or that R cut. I just wanted to explain it one more time because I hadn't really heard of it before. So it's a restricted, no, nor had I. a restricted crossing, a restricted U turn, which is why it's called an R cut. And so, as Marnie explained, if you were say coming down Highway Five and, and you approached Highway One the Trans-Canada, you wouldn't be able to cross it. You'd be forced, no matter which way you were coming at it, you'd be forced to go right and then make your way over to a left turning lane where you would then, a holding lane, so to speak, and you would do the U-turn and then circle back to the corner and make your right way either way, either to go south or north on five. And it sounded super complicated when I first heard about it and I wasn't certain if it even sounded safer, but I want to play a clip from Nicole Morris. Uh, she's with the Center of Transportation Studies at the University of Minnesota, and, and she says they can work well. It is new. It's a very novel intersection, but it's certainly a life-saving intersection design. And once drivers get the hang of it, they really grow to appreciate the changes that it makes to traffic and the nervousness that it really takes out of the equation of anticipating all the different flows of direction. There's also studies that have shown it has had an impact on the reduction of fatal crashes. And so I, I suppose that that's what they go for. I don't know about the roundabout. I still don't know about a roundabout. I like them. I don't know about a roundabout at a big intersection like that with all that traffic coming and going, but they work well in Europe and other spots. So I have to keep my mind open. The RCUT I hadn't even heard of, even though I have used them. So when when you think about it, you're like, wait, I have experienced that in the States and others. So now that I understand that that's its name, maybe that's the way forward. But my only other concern was it's going to still take more time. Yeah, time, of course, uh, just the enemy always and and. You know, you can discuss the whole idea of whether or not in Manitoba we we study the review or review the study or some combination of those words uh, too much or not. We can have that discussion another time. But that R cut, immediately when I heard about it, went online and found a video from the Department of Transportation in Wisconsin that walked me through it. I'm not sure, just personally, I'm not sure how more comfortable I am with the idea of people making a U-turn in order to come back and make a left Turn. I understand the concept, and I will trust Nicole Morris from from the Center for Transportation Studies, the University of Minnesota, that it is safer um, on a high speed route like that. You got to trust the experts, I suppose. But you know, a, a roundabout was proposed for highways one and sixteen. 
Those traffic signals remain. An interchange was something that was on the board, on the table, part of the conversation for as long as I can remember at that intersection. And we continue to delay, 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 postpone, study, look at, push back. And then the idea of of an interchange at five. Well, you know that there's not going to be an interchange at five and one before there's one at, at 16 and one. At least you wouldn't think. With volumes, traffic volumes, I don't think you would think. I think it would still be higher at 16, but I don't I don't know that for sure. And the interchange, as the premier pointed out, like that's a 25-year down the Like that's not something that can happen It's tens of millions now. of dollars, right? And it's costly and it takes more time. So I guess we'll, I'll have to wait and see. If families and people in that area are happy with what's being proposed, I think that's what matters, the people who cross it and the people who have lost to it. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Right now we want to talk about surprising culinary experiences you have had, whether good or bad. And we want to talk about this because spotted something in recent days. And I heard about this. Uh, I think it's relatively new to Winnipeg just in the last few months. But I heard about it and then promptly forgot about it until I saw it on social media last week. Uh, somebody that just uh, that Greg and I follow uh, went to something called Le Petit Chef. It is described as the world's smallest chef. It's animated, like interactive culinary experience at the Fairmont. And yeah, like the, the video of it was, it was like there's this 3D animation that's projected down onto your table and this little tiny chef is walking across your plate and walking across the table. And I don't know how it works in terms of the food, but he's basically, quote unquote, preparing your meal right in front of you on the table. And it just looks like a really neat and cute culinary experience so we want to i have no idea i'm sure the food's good but i haven't tried it and it's a it's a thing that's like it's available in i think 63 cities around the world uh, six in in canada and winnipeg i guess is the most recent addition to that so we just wanted to know what's a good or bad surprising culinary experience that you've had like the first time i went to ichiban I'd never been to a meal like that. A, where they cook right in front of you, and B, where they they're flipping their knives around and bouncing things off the grill and whatnot. That I was always cool, think huh? of the office when anyone mentions something like the Ichiban. Yeah, they had the is it the Benihana in the states? Yeah, that's what it is. And there, it's yeah. always Michael Scott was just like depressed, and they took him there to cheer him up because of just the the flashing knives. Did it work? And they, oh yeah, he had a lot of drinks and kept stealing food off other people's <laughs> plates. And- it's so much fun, Ichiban. Yeah, so that was a good experience, but uh, or maybe you've had a bad experience where you went for some fancy meal, like a multi-course appetizer kind of meal or whatever, and then you're like, I'm hungry at the end of it. <laughs> 204-780-6868, you're good or bad, surprising culinary experiences. Mackling, you mean you've worked in the restaurant industry for God knows how long. You must have one or two. Uh, probably the most surprising culinary experience I ever had was the opening night When we opened our pasta restaurant in uh, Vernon, B.C., our chef, very good chef, terrific cook, his uh, parents came in for dinner, and I was serving them, and they were one of our first ever tables, and I believe his dad had spaghetti with bolognese sauce, basically spaghetti and meat sauce, and promptly asked for ketchup. (laughs) (laughs) And the entire time that our restaurant was open, all the people that I served not one other person in the entire time we were open asked for ketchup. The only person who asked for ketchup was the son of our chef. I, I didn't think it was a ringing endorsement of his son's culinary abilities. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, interesting. We didn't have any ketchup in the restaurant, so he had to suffer without it. Well, I wonder, I want to ask Skylar a question because of your, what you do on the side with steak. I, I used to always ask for HP sauce because I'd get my steak well done. And then fa- this is in my early 20s. And finally, someone's like, you know, you just learned. because your done. steak is so dry that you're asking for this sauce. Like if you're serving someone a good steak and they ask for HP sauce. Yeah, you've you done rolling, something wrong. You're the the Venn diagram of people who order steak sauce and people who get steaks well done is a circle. Yeah. You know, <laughs> nobody gets a medium rare steak and asks for steak sauce. It took me forever to just be <laughs> like, Loren, you need to... It's correlation, not causation. Moisten up that steak <laughs> by just not killing it to death. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of your safety in your fridge. 
If you overcook the steak at home, <laughs> you, you got a little yeah. HP. Yeah. <laughs> you're tr- it's not, you're not wrong. <laughs> Cameron Poitras, a unique culinary experience for you. Surprising. Well, I mean, I went to the Czech Republic and I wasn't expecting to love the food there. Um, my favorite food on the planet is uh, Central and Eastern European peasant food. And the Czechs, I don't think they've ever seen a vegetable in their entire lives. I think they think a potato is like as far as, as a vegetable goes. There's no carrots. There's nothing green. You're never given. They, uh, there's no cucumbers in the entire country. I don't think. Love it. There's no lettuce or leaves. <laughs> That's um, not and the food was <laughs> fantastic. I, the best one I had was I went to. Um, uh, and this is something very close to something I uh, called uh, a mouth slap, which is a, a, a great Hutterite dish that I grew up with. And it was uh, it was like a bowl, and it was like this big dumpling, and in, inside of it were uh, was like these um, uh, was meat and all this stuffing and all this stuff, and it was I don't know what they did, and they put this big like yellow sauce on top of it, and it was freaking unbelievable. And it was at this Kozel, um, which you actually get the beer here um, at LC's now, uh, which is, means goat in Czech, and it's uh, it was like at this brewery, and I wasn't expecting much. I just went there for you know a couple of drinks, and I had this food, and it was I was my mind was blown. So it doesn't take much to impress me. Send me to Austria. Send me to the Czech Republic. I can live off schnitzel and sausage for as long as possible. You just want the restaurant where there's zero vegetable option. Well, like, I love vegetables. No, like, no, like I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to like go there and eat. Like, wow, well, I'll throw eat, anything like, in front eat. of me, I'll eat it. But yeah. like, I was like, wow, these people do not eat vegetables. Like, there's, it doesn't <laughs> exist here. They don't eat it. They don't eat vegetables. <laughs> Czech Republic just moved way up on my places <laughs> I'd like to visit. Oh. Skyler Peters, the what about you? The best there in the planet. Yeah, and I've had that beer can. It's actually, you're, I can I can second you. Oh, it is I was really happy good. when I saw yeah. it. Uh, this is actually a follow-up to yesterday's story, uh, funnily enough, because I left that golf tournament to go to a CrossFit competition in Saskatoon. And at the end of this CrossFit competition, uh, my buddy who used to live in Brandon with me and then moved up there, uh, we were partners for this. And he's like, all right, I'm taking you out for, for dinner. You know, after working out all weekend, he took me out for sushi, which is like just the least satisfying yeah. po You know, I need like a, like an eight patty burger. Anyway, first time trying sushi, we went to an all you can eat place. He like, you know, got some samples. It wasn't one roll I liked. So ever since 2016, I'd sworn off sushi. <laughs> then I met my girlfriend who's from Vancouver and she's like, you're trying this again. So when we went out there for the first time uh, last year, I tried sushi again at a, you know, proper sushi restaurant that's not in freaking Saskatchewan and it's unbelievable. <laughs> and I can't, and now I just can't stop eating sushi. The problem is that her standards are so high and I'm using air quotes here that she won't have sushi in Manitoba. So oh, I get sushi. Oh, I, either have a, I know. I know. Yes. So I'm going to have it by myself for like lunch when she's not around, that sort of thing. This is a great week for it, actually, because I work in the mornings. But I don't uh, think you're, yeah. it was the sushi was bad where you were. It's because of the timing. You were coming out of your exercise yes. competition yeah. and nobody No, it was just not, not what I needed. Yeah. You know? Great and, sushi place right down yeah. the stairs, well, right here in the That's building. what everybody says. So I'm, I'm probably grabbing it for lunch this week. 204-780-6868, your surprising culinary experiences, good or bad, for a chance to win. Tickets for the Winnipeg Renovation Show. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb want to talk real estate, the market. How was it in 2023? What are we expecting this year? But before that, if you're just tuning in, we're asking you to tell us about a surprising culinary experience that you have enjoyed or perhaps endured. What does Christina ask, Greg? Do any Winnipeggers remember the underground pizza works? I was super young, but recall that it had speakers coming out of the table where your server would interrupt your meal. They also had talking toilets. So weird it stays with me to this day. And I remember being there, Christina. And if my memory serves me correctly, I think the servers were dressed as mimes. Oh. I remember the different sound effects and that sort of thing. But I, I was quite young as well 
when I went there. So uh, anybody can fill in the blanks on the underground pizza works, 204-780-6868. The restaurants with a shtick to them. Like, does anyone ever go to Licks in Ontario and they no. would sing to you? Like, no. your, your order would be like a homeburger. And then it was like, Homeburg, grab your Homeburg, have a Homeburger and golden fries. And they would just sing the whole time. And so for the five minutes you're there, you're like, this is great. But I, was, I always wondered what it would be like to have worked there. Probably not great. <laughs> <laughs> budding, all the budding artists sure. start their career at Licks, Ontario. <laughs> and uh, you can let us know about the mimes, 204-780-6868. Right now the question is, will this be the year you get into the housing market or out? So last year closed with sales for all property types up for December 2023 compared to December of 2022. Prices were also up. This all comes from numbers through MLS. And Rena Prefontaine is the president of the Winnipeg Regional Real Estate Board and joins us now for more. Good morning, Rena. Good morning. Walk us through some of the data. What stands out for you? Yeah, so I think, I mean, just what you mentioned, the the sales, the listings, and the dollar volume being up in December is, um, I think, was a very pleasant surprise for myself personally, because typically December tends to be, you know, people are focused on other things and the weather starts to turn, so people start to stay home more as far as looking at houses. So, yeah, that was definitely a, a pleasant surprise and, you know, brings out some hope for 2024 for sure. Where are we in terms of pricing now, Rena? What, what's the average price for a detached home in Winnipeg? Yeah, so a residential detached home in Winnipeg, the average price right now is sitting at uh, just over $405,000. Um, and then if you were looking at condos, you're looking at just uh, just over 269000 And what sort of housing predictions are, are you anticipating for 2024? You know what, we... <laughs> It's, it's obviously hard to predict 2024. Um, basically, I always look forward to our Market Insights uh, event that we have in February. It's coming up on February 22nd. And this is where we have industry leaders telling us and talking to us about the market. They recap all of 2023 and they really do a deep dive into all aspects. Of course, um, we all know that interest rates, the economy, inflation, immigration, all of those um, play a role. But I think the one thing that realtors are excited about is to check out and see what's going to happen with the $122 billion investment with the city and the federal government, that, or sorry, million, not billion, um, with the city and the federal government and see how that will unfold and what impacts it's going to have in the real estate industry and our in our market. Yeah, what will it bring for affordable housing, which has been a big talk? Where will those new builds happen? And of course, as we talk affordability, you know, as I as I consider the idea that the numbers show that property types continue to rise, uh, sales listings, prices, all the rest, it makes me wonder about what you're hearing from the average first-time home buyer, because it was my understanding in the last year that many people were shy to get into the market given what was going on with interest rates, and yet here we still have a pretty active market, Rena. So what are you hearing from that demographic? Yeah, you know what? First-time home buyers. I mean, some of them, you know, if it was time to get out of mom and dad's basement, then they were going to do it anyway, regardless of what the interest rates were. So I think people are hopeful that the interest rates are going to start to come down a little bit, or at least stabilize for sure in 2024, early 2024. Um, there's always buyers and sellers for various reasons. You're upselling, you're downsizing, you know, you're moving across country for a job or whatever. So. I think that's why the market itself has been, um, you know, steady. It's not, you know, pandemic levels, but definitely we have had a a steady market. And 2023 actually turned out to be a pretty respectable year in in all aspects. Rena Prefontaine, President of Winnipeg Real Estate Board, joins us now. Rena, could you paint a picture when we talk about an average house in Winnipeg? What does an average house look, look, look like? What are you getting for that? you know, $405,000. Yeah, so you're probably getting, you know, something urban. Um, it's going to be, you know, maybe about twelve to 1,400 square feet, um, you know, whether it's a bungalow or single, any type of single family, I guess. But um, it's, you know, it's not going to be, you know, totally made up and it's probably not going to have your granite countertops, but it is going to be, you know, a very respectable three-bedroom family home that you can easily move into 
live with, with for a few years and, you know, renovate down the road if you want to make it your own. Uh, but definitely, you know, probably the urban areas. Rena Prefontaine, president of the Winnipeg Regional Real Estate Board, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Rena, thank you for the insight. We appreciate the time. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. It's Tuesday, just after 7.30. That means Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by cooperators investing in your future together. His teammates simply referred to him as the GOAT. That's the CFL's all-time leader in special teams tackles with 226. Our next guest missed the entire 2023 season after suffering an injury in training camp. But now we know Mike Miller has crossed the Rubicon from player to coach as he was introduced yesterday to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers' new special teams coordinator. So we welcome to Breakfast with the Bombers, Mike Miller. Mike, good morning and congratulations on your new position. Good morning. Thank you. I was uh, reading with a great deal of amusement, I have to say, the article posted by Ed Tate at BlueBombers.com about yesterday's coaching changes and and the fact that um, somebody congratulated you on your retirement. And as best as you can, maybe you could uh, recall and, and share with us that story, keeping in mind that we're on live radio. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, no, there's a few of them. Like, there's a few people that, you know, just sent me a nice text message and said, uh, congrats on the new position and a great career and uh, on the retirement. So, I, you know, when I took the position, uh, I didn't, uh, didn't think that through that that would also be uh, my retirement as a player. So when you consider the offer that came in, uh, well, I guess you probably had it a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago, Mike, I'm not sure when the conversation started. What goes through your mind when you're trying to make that transition saying, I'm, I'm now moving on to the next phase of my football career? Yeah, well, once the season was down, I was kind of, you know, kicking the tires as to what I was going to do, knowing that I wasn't going to be able to play again due to my injury. And uh, when, you know, when it came about, uh, the offer, um, you know, obviously it was exciting to be able to stay in the football world. Many CFL fans, of course, know that head coach Mike O'Shea was an absolute beast on special teams as a player. So can you maybe just tell us a little bit about why special teams are so important in Canadian football? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge part of the game with the three downs. And there's always, uh, you know, a lot of change of possession. And uh, special teams really is uh, what keeps the momentum, like, in your corner. Um, You know, field position is everything. And, uh, you know, special teams is a huge part of that in the Canadian football game. What's it going to be like coaching guys you played with, Mike? Yeah, I'm not sure. I had that question a few times, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping it's an easy transition. It'll probably be a little weird at the start, but, um, you know, I've got some good relationships with guys in that locker room, and um, hopefully, you know, that'll, you know, help things uh, move move forward. Yeah, I guess I could ask you, what do you think it's going to be like? Because uh, you don't know until you, no. you get in there. Culture and life in, in Winnipeg, I just want to ask you about that. We've had so many discussions over the last four or five years about the change of culture, uh, the winning culture now with the Blue Bombers. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will argue, myself included, that the, the Blue Bombers are the flagship franchise in the Canadian Football League but even going back to their you know successes in the mid 1980s and early 1990s so many of those players from that era still live in Winnipeg they call Winnipeg home and so just talk about the culture and and life in Winnipeg maybe inside and outside the dressing room that would make this an uh, attractive place for you to you know take your first job outside of you know being a football player yeah I mean it's it's an organization that is definitely the flagship of the CFL. Um, I mean, top to bottom, just like really good people. Um, and they do a really good job of making people feel comfortable, making their families feel comfortable there. Um, you know, everybody's very, you know, uh, close with each other. And then, I mean, the city of Winnipeg embraces the Bombers like, uh, like no other city. Um, the fans are, you know, absolutely unreal i mean they've been filling out the stadium um you know they they support them you know wholeheartedly um yeah it's just it was an easy you know decision because it's so comfortable there they make it comfortable for you and they they do they treat like a you know uh like a family is there any challenge when it comes to moving to coaching and now you're talking to players who were once your teammates and now you have to have you have to have that, that different level or relationship with them do you have to 
change the way you talk to them, do you think, Mike? Or is that just really part of, of part and parcel of what you come to expect on either side, whether as player or coach? Yeah, I don't, I, I, you know, I mean, I haven't done it much. <laughs> I got kind of a, you know, a bit of a taste of it last year being injured, just helping guys one-on-one uh, conversations and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure how, how that's, how I'm going to approach that. I mean, I, I want to, you know, be, uh, you know, maybe a player coach. I don't want, you know, I want to, I don't, I, yeah, that's a tough question. I don't know if, how I'm going to approach that yet. But. It's like if my classmate became my principal, uh-oh, like now how do I deal with the being disciplined? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, for sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I'm just basically just going to try to, you know, put the guys in the best position to, you know, to be successful and um, and then just coach them up where, where they need to be. I mean, these guys are all professionals, you know, the, most of them have been playing football for a good time and, and, and they can bring the young guys along as well. Was there a, was there a like a grieving process for you when you when you realized that uh, maybe your playing days were behind you? Oh yeah, I mean it was a it was a pretty rough uh, season last year. You know, finding out pretty early uh, what the the injury was with my neck, and um, you know I, you know I was hopeful all season that there was going to be some sort of solution to get me back out on the field. And once you know that you know was kind of uh, you know put to bed that there wasn't going to be any chance of me returning, um, you know, there definitely was a grieving process. It was, you know, quite a, a mental strain uh, on me and my family. I mean, they had to watch me go through that the whole season. So, you know, that was definitely tough. Um, but, yeah, no, it's it's just exciting now that, you know, I get I get to stay in the football world in, in a different role. And, um, and a lot of people say that coaching is, the, you know, the next best thing to playing. So, you know, I'm hopeful for that and then look forward to the opportunity just before we let you go mike you mentioned this whole idea of family and coming to that realization that you had this injury that was going to you know take you away from from the game at least as a player do you find you know you've been around the league and around this game for a long time has the attitude changed and this is not in a negative way in any way um do you think the attitude has changed where players do have a trying to balance their approach to the game of football. I, I know years ago it was all about football and I'll do anything I can do to win. I'm not saying there's any less of that, but the idea of also keeping an, an eye out and a consideration for what life after football looks like, but by not playing through injuries that, that might ultimately lead to a debilitating, you know, sort of a long-term injury after, after you leave the game as a player. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, probably the science um, behind injuries and stuff like that, they're, they're more knowledgeable about it on that side of it. But you're probably asking the wrong guy because I was trying to find any which way that they were going to let me be on the field. And uh, it just wasn't in the cards for them to let me step back out on the field. I figured you might say that. It's been a pleasure yeah. to watch you as a player, Mike. I'm so glad you ended up with the Blue Bombers and now to, to take this next step but within the organization I think is a tremendous testament to your professionalism as a player and to the to the football club being wise enough to keep you around. So congratulations and thanks for your time this morning. All the best. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mike Miller joining us live for Breakfast with the Bombers. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Hey, just a quick reminder that we're asking you this morning about a unique culinary experience, a surprising culinary experience. Like this listener who had quite the fancy family dinner saying at Christmas time, I experienced duck confit for the first time. I was expecting it to be really greasy because that's what I'd heard about duck, but it was delicious and I actually like it more than turkey now. The duck was brought in from Ottawa Tortier was brought in from Quebec. It was a delicious French dinner. So, yeah, that's quite the family dinner. So, anyone know what's done differently with the duck? Like, I have no must idea. Must be just what they season it with. It's, um, it's a whole duck, according to the families uh, perpetrating the uh, tradition of duck confit. All pieces of duck are used to prov- produce the meal. But hmm. other than that, okay, okay, that sounds yummy. I had so, that at uh, is it Hearth? Okay. On uh, St. Mary's, is that the name of the yep. place? Yep. Sure. Yeah, it, it was very, very good. And Ooh. I did not, first time I ever had duck myself. 
204-780-6868. The culinary experiences that surprised you, be they good or bad, we'll pick a winner at 915 for the tickets for the Winnipeg renovation show happening this weekend at the RBC Convention Center. Popping the question, maybe took a back seat during COVID, with even dating and nights out challenging through all the restrictions Many very lonely, quiet nights for one Brett McGarry. <laughs> but some data suggests this could be the year of the ring. That would be the wedding ring. I, I did not know this was something that was tracked, but I, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that there's data on almost everything now. But I was combing through some bridal magazines this morning. I, I think it was, is it the bride magazine? I can't remember. But I was looking through different articles and one referenced a company called Signet Jewelers that uses its own metrics to decide how ring sales are going to go. And they're predicting that we'll see a boost in engagements this year because they look at statistics like banking, home purchases, pet purchases to see how relationships are or are not growing. Oh, wow. And once a pair hits at least 25 of these 40 markers that they've chosen, yeah. then their odds of getting engaged go up. So obviously this company, Greg, wants to sell rings. And so they sure. want to perpetuate the idea that we could see more weddings this year. But anecdotally in our office post new year, we have all sorts of people talking about the folks they know that are getting married. So how are things looking for the industry? Yeah. And I suppose if you're selling wedding rings or engagement bands, you want to make sure you have a good supply. So when people come to buy them, you can uh, help them out. Uh, lots of things we could talk about on that front, but why don't we talk about how things are looking for the wedding industry here at home. Whitetail Meadow, south of Winnipeg on Highway 200, is home to a rustic environment for weddings and special events. It's a spectacular facility is what it is. We're joined by uh, its owner, Dave Newfeld. Dave, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, I've I've seen your facility just by chance uh, taking a, a unique route to the United States one day. And uh, just uh, I was blown away by the fact that you were there. So can you just tell us about uh, your facility? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm actually the uh, the second generation that's involved here. Uh, my, my wife, Jen, and I came came on board a few years back. Uh, my parents started the uh, started the facility back in. Uh, they, my dad actually built most of it with his bare hands back in 2016. It, uh, it was a hundred year old barn that uh, that was renovated over a couple of years, and they've been uh, we've been doing weddings there ever since. I'm just looking at pictures online. It really does look like a spectacular facility and a great place to to get married. So, just, I guess we're curious to know what are you seeing this year? What is trending as far as weddings go? Well, um, our, us personally, we're seeing a, a lot of changes. Um, we had we had a glut after COVID of sort of weddings that were um, that were on the back burner that we had pre-booked before you know things sort of went south, so to speak. Um, and then once that glut was over, um, you know, I, I think I think the, in terms of the general uh, mindset of the population, uh, larger you know larger gatherings are are you know being accepted again. But I think uh, what we're seeing is uh, is just sort of a bit of a change in uh, in the size and types of weddings uh, versus the way that things were pre-pandemic. Uh, things are a little bit smaller and maybe uh, maybe budget-wise a little bit more modest. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, with the inflation and everyone talking about monetary pressures, Dave. Of course, it would be make sense that people were thinking, okay, maybe we don't go as big as usual. So, what would have been the typical size or your average size a few years ago, and what is it now? So I would I would say that an average size wedding uh, pre pandemic was probably in uh, in the ballpark of 250 maybe 300 on a, on, a, on the larger side. Um, our capacity uh, at, at our uh, main facility was 350, so um, that would have been a that would have been a large wedding. Um, but uh, I think now uh, post pandemic we're seeing wedding sizes on average probably more like the 125 to 150 range. So depending on your on your business model, that can affect you in a negative way uh, based on, you know, corkage and, and things like that, like other money makers besides just the facility rental itself. Just wondering, Dave, do you think maybe the, the size uh, change could also just be related to how the pandemic forced a lot of us to kind of reexamine our priorities? And maybe they're looking and saying, do we really need to invite this person who then wants to bring that person? Do we really need to give an in? I'd rather invite this person over that. Like they're just... People are maybe being a bit more, not careful, but a bit more particular on, on who they're bringing to the wedding. 
sure. Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it because, I mean, obviously straight after COVID, we weren't seeing the economic um, you know, issues that we're seeing today. So uh, that's um, the scope and the scope of the, like, you know, and the size of the weddings that, that we were seeing then actually were, you know, diminished significantly too. So I think that you're spot on there. Uh, I think people are just more, probably more careful about um, who, who they're inviting these days. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, everyone they know, um, you know, there was a, there was a time where, you know, a four or 500 person wedding probably, you know, wasn't out of the question. And yeah, we just haven't seen anything like that. Um, uh, you know, since since we reopened a couple of couple of years ago, Dave, one of the challenges we've been hearing from all sorts of businesses is, of course, being able to hire people, hold on to them, uh, pay them, uh, you know, appropriate wages or, or wages that workers seem to think are appropriate these mm-hmm. days. Are you seeing yeah. those challenges? And with you sort of touched on the idea that with the smaller wedding, obviously your per event revenue is going down a little bit and we don't have to get too deep into the weeds on that, but just, is it having you have, is it forcing you to re-examine sort of the, the business model and your hiring practices, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Actually that, that, uh, you know, that exact problem is, uh, is sort of what one of the factors that sort of promised, uh, prompted us to, to sort of re-examine our business model and uh, diversify a little bit. Um, so we're realizing that just the seasonal nature of the wedding industry makes it very hard to find consistent, reliable people. And, you know, we did have some really great employees that came back year on year. Um, but uh, so we, we kind of made the decision that we were going to uh, build a separate facility so that we could, um, you know, maybe try to afford wed- or make weddings slightly more affordable for an average person, but then keep uh, our main facility open year round for other types of activities. Yeah. So on your property now you had that barn that uh, was refurbished. It's gorgeous and, and, and it's, it's large. And then you have the house people can rent and then you've built that three season pavilion uh, on the, on the North side there. And so you're clearly looking to, to, book more events what are you hearing just from the event people out there like not maybe not just weddings but i know you host like christmas markets and all sorts of things are those back in the way that they would have been pre-pandemic yeah i would say so um i would say there that, that things are back um as far as as far as that goes where you know we are booking events we haven't been able to do christmas markets this year just because um you know part of our reinvention is that our, that our main barn facility um is going to be a permanent market and cafe um, so our our event area is, is specifically now a three season event, and what we were a three season facility rather. Um, so the reason why we did that is because we were finding that the vast majority of our events were from spring to fall, and we had this large facility that we were heating year round, um, and not really you know able to uh, effectively keep the lights on. Um, so so our thought pattern was our thought process was let's uh, let's kind of do something that people can enjoy the greater public can come and enjoy year round. You know, the plan is to, you know, have, have things to do, um, you know, spring to fall and, and all winter long, you know, snowshoes, skis, all that kind of thing. And, uh, and then kind of leave uh, the more specific wedding and event uh, venue for, from spring to fall. Any cancellations, last second cancellations in the last couple of years where, Oh boy, the wedding's about to start and, that's it. Wedding's off. We've had a few last minute cancellations. Um, and, you know, like, honestly, the COVID was, uh, I mean, that, that definitely created a challenge in that regard for mm-hmm. us. You know, like, obviously we have, we have a contract and we were trying to do our best to respect everyone's feelings uh, about everything while still, you know, sort of respecting the, the, you know, you know, the agreement that everyone signed here, but yeah, absolutely. We do face some last minute cancellations and, and people are just changing their mind about dates and stuff like that. And it presents an ongoing challenge for us. Dave Newfeld with Whitetail Meadows, south of Winnipeg on Highway 200, home to rustic weddings and special events. Dave, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate this. Thanks so much for having me. And feel free to uh, let us know. Anybody you know getting married this year? Did one of our, is this the place where one of our colleagues years back got married? I remember one of our colleagues got married someplace just south of the city Mm. at a place like this. It might have been that one. It's a really neat space. And I think what's cool about what he was talking about is 
you know, like the, so many, how many times did you hear pivot, pivot, pivot in the pandemics for businesses, right? And so they've done some really remarkable things. They're still growing there. And the idea that they're turning that main space into to more than just an event center, right? Whether it's cafe or, or local right. artists or whatever, that, that's that's how entrepreneurs have to work. I mean, all the credit to that because you cancel the wedding last minute. We were talking about cancellations in mm. restaurants yesterday, like 300 people suddenly not showing or or COVID or whatever hits. It's hard. I forgot to mention this. We were talking about surprising culinary experiences. And uh, I went to a wedding 15 years ago, and the wedding was held at a dim sum restaurant in Winnipeg. So we had like a nine course meal. It took three hours to eat. So that alone was cool because it was all food I had never tried. I never had dim sum before. But one of the courses, and I don't think you can even get this anymore, is uh, shark fin soup, which I had never, didn't know was a thing. And it looked disgusting because it was, it was just a clear, like the liquid was clear. It just looked like gelatin or something. And it looked honestly like I looked like I was about to eat a bowl of hair. Because it was just strands of this stuff. Oh, I am looking at this. Even the color is not super appetizing. But it's like a tapioca type color. Yeah, but it was. It was <laughs> I delicious. Hate, I hate to say it. It was delicious. Mm. I could have eaten a bucket of it. Oh, it, really? it is. You're right. It is banned now. Yeah, because I think date, it's, I think yeah. it's in 2019. There is a ban on yeah. you can't import shark fins the that fins aren't attached stuff. right to the shark. So I don't know if, what I have no idea what went into the preparation of the shark fin soup. It's the one time in my life I've ever had it, but that whole experience was a real. Uh, it was, I mean, I, you know, it was super interesting, and it was all the food was great. Well, and, good on you for like going all in on all of it because it's easy if you haven't tried it just to say, eh, not gonna, not gonna go down that road. I was at a wedding where they did pork, um, which is not unusual, but. I can't recall how they cooked it. It must have been on a, like a spit? spit type thing. Yeah. But on the center of each table was the head. Of, and, of, of, uh, of a And you could, a, with the a, apple with or whatever apple? in it, and it um, you, and they were recommending you eat the cheek, which is apparently really tasty. <laughs> and? I did not. Okay. But people who did were like raving it was the best meal they'd ever had. Well, I mean, much smaller being, but pickerel cheeks are supposed to be quite a delicacy. It's just that you don't see it. Like I, it's this, this, we've had this conversation about the visceral reaction to food when it looks like it, the food. And I know Brett, you've talked about seafood before. I think it's you, right? With was it lobster you were texting with someone about? Yeah. We had a woman who was saying that uh, her boyfriend took her out for steak and lobster. And it was one of those places where you can select your lobster who's still alive in the tank. And she said, well, at least one lobster got a stay of execution. I only had steak that mm. night. And I, I like, I, I've had lobster, I think, twice in my life. I have nothing against it. I just remember the one, t- the first time I had it, I thought, that was messy and, like, not... You've talked about this before, Loren. It's about the butter. Um, but I know you love it, Greg, so I'm not poo-pooing it. No, no. And I'd love to try it again, but I just, I couldn't... Be that I, I wouldn't be, I'd be in the same boat. I would not be able to say, I'll have that one. That lobster is going to meet its doom and meet my stomach. I, I know I'm, it doesn't really make a difference in the end. I'm still eating sure. an animal that has been slaughtered for my consumption, but I can't be the one who gives the order of execution. You didn't pick the steer out in the lineup. And I, for me, I, I don't necessarily love food that looks like its original incarnation. Like I, even wings, I've said before, I have a hard time with. Sometimes I like them, but I don't look at them while I'm eating them. And then it's not even an emotional You're thing. It's like chicken wings. Yeah, it's like because I can physically, it's the chicken's wing. And even when you order, say, a bucket of chicken from yeah. somewhere, I always want the keel, which is like the. Don't have, I was just going to say, don't have the keel then. Why? What, what part is that? Don't even tell me. Don't even say it. No, 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 Think no, no, no. about it. No, no, no. What's the keel of a boat? I, the butt. Uh-huh. I don't care. I don't care. It's fine. It doesn't look like the butt. It doesn't look like a butt. Really? But the mm. rib looks like a rib. Yep. And when you even when you eat ribs, you know, you're like, this is just physically the slab. Like this is just a cutout rib. Delicious. <laughs> but I have to really disassociate myself from well, what I'm doing. For all the goofy things I have with food, I would have no problem walking into a restaurant and say, Hey, you pinchy, come here. Let's dance. Come here. <laughs> in 30 minutes, <laughs> you're gonna be drowning in butter. 
And then I'm going to be eating you, devouring you, every little bit of you as I can. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Adios. <laughs> Doug just texted now to say, in our family, we purchase the imitation crab meat or whatever, soak it in garlic butter, and we call it Seine River Lobster because we're from St. Boniface. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Doug. Uh, Sane River Lobster. That's great. Uh, so thanks to all for weighing in on your <laughs> surprising and unique culinary experiences. Uh, and once again, we're hungry because we like to torture ourselves and spend the whole morning talking about food. But right now we want to talk about bees because it's the end of an era for a Manitoba family that is saying goodbye to a pretty cool piece of property. I hadn't even known this existed and had been traveling our streets, but this is a, a moving bus. For bees, Global's Irish Dick explains. When we came here, we saw that uh, it would be good to have bees in the bus, because, especially because of the bear. This is metal. For 10 summers, this school bus was full of life. But now, the Castraba family is saying goodbye. Irina and Mike are selling their beekeeping bus, a handmade home that used to hold 35 hives. We saw that there was a big parking lot full of school buses, so we just stopped by and said, can you sell us? And then we bought there probably five buses. At age 65, the couple built their first traveling apiary, Look. and over the years built two more. They drove the buses across the prairies, collecting the honey and other bee products to process and sell. The couple moved to Canada from Ukraine in 2005, where they'd been full-time beekeepers for decades. Their daughter Irina Ayano translates. I was very young and I just loved bees and my wife did not. And I kept persuading her, let's buy some bees. When I started studying about them and I started loving them and I, I just fell in love. In Ukraine, the Kostrabas built mobile hives, traveling far and wide to find flowering fields. Honey. <laughs> and money. When they moved to Winnipeg, they saved for eight years to buy a rural property to pursue their passion in retirement. Mike even has a nickname for his wife of 54 years. Queen? But after some health issues, the Castrabas made the difficult choice to sell their buzzing companions. Because so, so there is so much connection. All of our lives we worked with bees. I really don't want to sell all this that we have here. But it's time. Time came that we have to part. The couple still keeps a healthy stock of bee products at home. Honey. Very nice honey. <laughs> They say they've had some interest since putting the bus up for sale, even if seeing it go is bittersweet. Iris Dick, Global News. Mm, bittersweet. Super cool story, and it's another good example of newcomers and, and the contributions that are made when people come and try out all sorts of ways of life, and this includes like a kind of really neat entrepreneurial effort to travel. I don't know how comfortable I would be traveling with the bees. I don't know why. Like, it's not like they're going to just get out. Because <laughs> they're bees? But they're bees, and now you're confined in the bus on the road. But I'd ha I, I, I I'd suspect have they have their own more. compartment. No, I know they're not just sitting next to me with their seatbelt on. <laughs> hey. Like, just like. <laughs> you guys need to stop for, I gotta, for a slurpee. I need a pee break. Like, they're not asking for, like, a little outdoor time. But I don't know. Uh, yeah. No, I, I would be, it would, it would be a little concerning for me as well. And I get that, you know, people who who work with bees, they've got their tricks of the trade and sure. no problem. And, and even with the, like what, one of the things I enjoy about spring and early summer is going out and just watching the bees. Like even we have, they'll put up some little plants and bushes outside our building here at 201 Portage. And I was standing outside and I just sort of looked at this thing that's maybe 15, 20 feet wide, just a series of these plants. And there had to be like, I bet you 50 bees in there mm -hmm. all just going to work and, and not one of them Gave a rip no. that I was there. No. Wasps, different story. But bees, yeah, I, I know they're docile and really you you have to really provoke them. But uh, I wouldn't want to so be important. riding around a bus with no, them. No, they're so important. So we're talking about the contribution to economy of running this little bus business and then the contribution of the bees themselves. This is just to not take this turn. Have we addressed the fact before? Like, is there a point to the wasp? 
What purpose does it serve? <laughs> we have talked to Taz I, I, about that before. I can't remember. What purpose do they serve? Uh, they are pollinators, I believe. Yeah. Right? They're, they're pollinators. Because they that's the classic meme. That's the classic meme where, where there's a picture of a bee and a picture of a wasp. And it, it, for the bee, there's a whole list of things that the bees do for the world. And then for the wasp, it says, just a jerk. No, just so they eat, they eat uh, caterpillars, weevils, aphids. Like they eat crop destroying bugs. Okay, so wasps are, aren't bad. Some farmers have been known to purchase wasp colonies. This is coming from a website, Poulin's Pest Control, to take care of their pest problems. But and, they're also a nuisance and a danger to people. Yeah, well, there <laughs> the you go. Line. Hello, hello. Uh, uh, the bees, you'll hear people joke about how much or how little a bee will make in terms of honey over their lifetime. In the course of her lifetime, a word, this is from PBS, Nova Online. In the course of her lifetime, a worker bee will produce one Twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. To make one pound of honey, workers in a hive will fly the equivalent of 55,000 miles and tap 2 million flowers. Oh boy. So anytime you get assigned a task and you think it's a make work project, think of the bee. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Scott just said he'd be interested in buying this used vehicle, but doesn't like getting stung on the deal. <laughs> Way to go, Scott. Uh, so you'll be able to read more on this at globalnews.ca slash Winnipeg and see it on the 6 o'clock news this evening. But in the meantime, let's check your forecast and then check in with Hal Anderson next on The Start.